Everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week, we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Dr. Hasnain Abbasi, who is a co-founder of AT Medics, the largest primary care provider in England, who merged with Uprose Health a few years ago. They have a collective management of over 650,000 patients. He's also co-founded AT Medics, AT Learning, a primary care director, and involved in digital health transformation. Absolute, absolute pleasure having you on the show, um, Hasnain. How are you? Welcome to the yeah, show. Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks, guys. And uh, looking forward to it. Anyone, if they were to kind of Google you, check you out on LinkedIn, they will know the incredible things you've done, the acquisition, 80 minutes, how you grew to hundreds of thousands of patients. But what we like to do is we want to take it all the way to the very beginning, kind of the early stages, your motivations to study medicine. I know you went to St. George's and kind of bring us up to where you are now. So look, man, um, I was one of those uh, who had a lot of family pressure to do medicine. I really didn't <laughs> want to study medicine. Um, I kind of hated undergrad. I hated preclinical medicine um, and went to St. George's, obviously. But then when I got into clinical medicine, I really enjoyed it um, mm. and really haven't looked back. Um, obviously, George's was an amazing time because that's where I met all of my partners. We all went to med school together the mm. people that I ultimately work with. So, you know, it was just destiny. Um, mm. But yeah, I really had no interest to, to do medicine. I was pretty strong at maths. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, like Asian parents. Yeah. Very keen to do medicine. So so that's kind of kind of the story. I was a pretty average student. Um, wasn't wasn't anywhere near the top. Um, just kind of scraped through at each stage. So I'm um, just lucky, just lucky to get through. Really. So straight off the bat. <laughs> it's you know it's important what would you have done otherwise you said you studied math you would have studied maths what career path would you have taken if you didn't do math uh, medicine yeah so look, i really wanted to do engineering so i was really okay. strong at math physics um i wanted to do engineering from from you know but it was kind of like you know my dad had said me and my brother who's also a, a radiologist it was yeah. like you both got to be doctors and that was it he just said it like <laughs> i'm yeah. So it wasn't really an option. It was like, okay, where do you want me to apply? Like, you know, filling out my UCAS form. So yeah. that's how it was. Fair like, it, it ended up working super well for you guys. I imagine they were friends first before they became co-founders. And yeah, tell us yeah. about that relationship. And did you know you guys would go off to do something? Or, you know, how did you meet? What was the vibes like? Yeah, I mean, look, man, we were just, um, you know, a bunch of guys came from different parts of London. We didn't know each other beforehand. Okay. Um, and... We just kind of got into a group, um, became very good friends. Yeah. Um, some of the guys that had come from further afield were living together um, yeah. in a flat. Um, and we just, we were just good friends, really. We had no idea we'd ever go into business together. <laughs> there was no plan. Um, even after med school, you know, we, we, we remained in contact, but people went off to do different things. So yeah. Tarek, who's one of our partners, he went off to do pediatrics. I went off to do anesthetics. Manid joined the RAF. So people went to do different things. Some people went straight into GP. But even at that point, at the beginning, there really was no master plan, as it were. We yeah. had that university. We're going to, like, you know, do something together. You know, some of these things are just luck and timing. Um, yeah. So, so at that time, it was just really good friends. Very, very good mm. friends. Hasnain, walk us through, though, the process of self-discovery. So you've gone through med school. You've obviously say, said that you haven't enjoyed it much. But how does someone like you transition into what it is right now talk us through that journey so look what happened is after so you know medicine became interesting around year four five that was like mm. a time where i was like oh thank god i did medicine this is an amazing career i really enjoy it i thank my dad yeah. you know mm. it was a good good choice we then all kind of came out of med school 
Um, and really Imran, who's one of our partners, it was his original idea. And his mm -hmm. idea was, guys, let's, let's work together. It's so much fun. Like, we all get on. Why don't we try and work together? Why don't we all do general practice? Yeah. And then the idea was to try and work together in one single GP practice. But it was obviously a silly idea because how do you get six guys into like a single GP? You know, then they were, most practices were much smaller. Mm, so yeah. once we'd kind of decided we wanted to do something and we weren't entirely clear. I mean, that's, I suppose, one of the other learnings for other people that we weren't entirely sure where we're going to end up. We just had a general sense. Two of our partners, Imran and Osman, they qualified first as GPs. And really at that time, the idea was, okay, what, what are we going to do? So I swapped out of anesthetics into general practice. Tariq left mm. pediatrics. Maneeb kind of left the RAF. And we kind of started to decide, okay, well, if we can't work in a single practice, we need to start to think about how we're going to make, you know, how, how can we get into this sphere of primary care? Um, mm. And it, it sounds crazy now, man, but, you know, this is like, 2004 five you know we had a book where we had all the primary care directors in london we just wrote them sounds like so silly now we wrote them a letter like handwritten letter oh wow we posted it and and no one responded but one guy responded so the story one guy responded in in west london and he said look i've got this gp practice where the gp is about to be struck off oh. and mm. i need someone to take over the practice the practice was one room that's yeah. it it was like one room you walk in the door and a really tiny room on the side for reception. So we were like, we were hungry, man. We were like, cool. So Imran Osman took over that practice okay. and started to turn it around. At the same time, we, this is as a GP registrar now. So we had a practice that come out again, unfortunately, where a GP had suddenly just died and yeah. the, the, the PCT were looking for someone to take over. We kind of put in a really rudimentary bid. And, you know, I remember typing in how to write a business plan. Like we didn't know what to do. So typed it in, wrote up a rudimentary plan about how we might run this practice. Anyway, they gave it to us. And mm -hmm. so those were our first two practices and we just learned on the job. Just for kind of cursive of the, the viewers and the listeners, what <clears throat> does it mean to run a practice? Cause traditionally yeah. it's GP, your salary, you hear the word partner, you don't really know what it means. Yeah. What's the difference of being GP and running a practice? So look, you know, being a GP partner is quite unique within the NHS because you take the risk of running that practice. So the way it works in your practice is you will get a pound per patient. You get some money for managing a population. Now, within that budget, you have to run, pay the staff, pay the doctors, pay the bills, do all of that kind of stuff. And whatever's left at the end is your profit. That's your that's your income for that year. And mm. whether you're a one partner practice or a five partner practice, it kind of works like that. So you can imagine those practices are very well run. They hit all their targets um, because that's the way GPs are paid. It's incentivized according to targets. You have a big list size. You're going to earn well. You're going to do well. Those practices that are, you know, quote unquote, badly run, or they might be in a really deprived area where, you know, there's a lot of demand. They might struggle to make, and that's where you get disparities in income. Hmm. When you're a salary GP, it's a bit like, I suppose, when you work in a hospital, you know, you kind of, you do your job. You get paid for it. You get paid every month. You know what you're getting every month. Um, whether the practice does well or badly, you are into a contract. Now, if you look at it now, unfortunately, the way primary care is developed is that a lot of GPs are going into either into locoming or salaried or there aren't as yeah. many partnerships around. So it has created a slightly, you know, definitely a two-tier system where you've got partners and salaried GPs, and that, that's been an issue. Um, but, but that's the kind of the broad difference between the two. Thank you for sharing that. And kind of going back, so you had these two practices, which yeah. you're now effectively running. You're kind of learning on the job. 
Yeah. Tell us kind of a bit more how it grew, how it will kind of, you know, the next few things that happen afterwards. So look, we took over this practice and we didn't know anything genuinely. Yeah? So, so, so the first thing is sometimes you learn by doing. So we got in and we were like, oh damn, like we actually employ. I remember the first, the night before I thought, God, man, we like employ five people. Like now <laughs> we're responsible for making sure five people get paid on time. So I remember, you know, at the end of the month, logging on, paying people their pay. Oh, wow. Make for people's pensions. So I learned how pensions were paid for staff. I learned how payroll was done. The practice we went into was, it was completely mashed. So we kind of, you know, learned about how to set the waiting room up. It had no IT in it at all. So we kind of learned all of the aspects of, mm. of running it on the job. It was like business training you can get. Um, at the same time we were consulting. So we were working like full-time as clinicians oh, and wow. this was like on, on the side. And Imran and Ozzy were doing the same. They were kind of, you know, digitizing notes, bringing that practice up to speed and learning the same journey. So we all kind of went on this journey together to learn how and what is efficient, what's a good way of running uh, primary care. So after those two, and then, you know, luck plays. So then what happened around that time, man, is that there was a general feeling that labor wanted to open the market of primary care up to other providers. Yeah. We call them mm -hmm. private providers. We were obviously GPs, but we set ourselves up as a company to begin with. So we didn't go down a traditional partnership. We said, we're going to behave like a corporate entity, even though we mm -hmm. were tiny. We had like, you know, we were earning less than all of our friends that had gone into jobs. We were, you know, earning probably half what they were earning, but yeah. we wanted to set ourselves up in that kind of corporate entity. Then what happened is that PCTs, the people that run, you know, local health outside of hospitals who commission contracts, they started putting contracts out for GP practices. Some were new practices, some were practices that had been really run into the ground for whatever reason, someone died or they were just badly run. So we then wrote a bid. And at that time, I mean, you guys are really young, man, but at the time people were trying to come into the market. So United Health were a massive American corporation. They came in and started to bid. Um, we were bidding, but there weren't that many providers. So obviously we were clinicians. And so when we were, yeah. our, our bid was pretty sick. Because our bid, you know, we really analyzed the health needs. We knew how to run a good practice. And this was actually in, in Trowbridge. So Trowbridge is in Hackney. So it was the mm. first practice we properly did a tender for and we bid for. And actually we won. So we beat oh, all wow. these big providers. I remember going to the interview. There was two of us, United Health Europe, about eight people turned up with like <laughs> case, that and the other. And we were just two of us. And anyway, alhamdulillah, we, we kind of, we got that practice. And so that gave us a lot of confidence that actually, you know, we kind of know what we're doing. We're not hundred percent, but we kind of know we're in the right ballpark. Again, it was a very small practice. We then kind of bid for another. So, you know, the other good thing about luck is that there weren't that many GPs doing what we were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a bit of a virtual territory. We were going up against big corporations who didn't really understand primary care. That's one of the things we've learned over time that it's a very detailed area and a lot of people don't understand how it works. So we basically went on from there, man. We bid for one practice, two practice, bid for a few more. And before we knew it, we were up to about five or six practices, mainly mm -hmm. in like Lambeth, some in Croydon. And, and a couple dotted around. Um, and so that's kind of the kernel of where we were like, okay, this is now a multi-site organization we're running. Mm, amazing. Before we kind of move on, tell us what it means when you put in a bid. Is the bid kind of like a proposal we're going to do X, Y, Z, or is it we want to buy this practice? What does that bid mean? Yeah, good question, man. So look, these are public procurement. So these are tenders that are put out. Uh, at that time, this is pre-Brexit. They were Europe-wide. They were advertised Europe-wide. You have to put in a bid and it's changed over time. That's the other mm -hmm. thing. But in the very early days, we would just write a business plan. 
Like okay. might be like a 50, 100 page business, business plan covering governance, prescribing, um, complaint handling. And over time, CCU's learned how to make this more professional. So now what happens, man, is it's very, very hard. They basically publish a tender document. Yeah. And you have to sit there writing out answers effectively, like short answer questions, 500 words, 1,000 words. How are you going to manage? What are the health needs of this area? And how are you going to manage it? That's one question, for example. Mm. Another question might be, how do you how are you going to make assure us that your clinical governance what's your clinical governance system one might be how are you going to ensure prescribing is good and you can imagine they're like maybe 50 questions plus you've got to put in a financial proposal about how you're going to run the practice so you don't buy them these are tenders that are put out so there's no upfront capital investment I other see. than your time you've got to sit mm. there and write them out it's the most painful thing i've ever done in my life and and <laughs> and i probably ever will do it's it's so boring it's so hard. But what we learned is that, I mean, our win rate, I mean, I'll say it because just going through, but you know, our win rate at the end was like over 90%, which is just unheard of. Why? Wow. Because you had six clinicians plus some very highly skilled non-clinicians that have been with us for a long time. We just knew what to write. And yeah. so when you mix that clinical plus business mix, I personally believe it's unassailable. I think it really puts you up at a very high level. I want to ask, I want to ask a, an important question because you're probably the first person to come onto our podcast with a co-foundership of more than three people. With regards to your team size, talk to us a little bit about the dynamics. How did you guys split the roles? How did you guys work with each other? Because there will be some startups, startup founders listening to us who have bigger teams and everyone will say, we only like teams of two, teams of three. How does it work with the team of six? How did you guys manage that to such a successful point? I mean, it's a great question. It's one that we get asked quite a lot, man, because it is a bit unique to have six people come together. The first is, man, is just trust. You have to have unbelievable level of trust. I mean, if I give you a small anecdote, you know, one of the things I've often seen partnerships, even a two-man partnership breakdown, is often over money. Mm -hmm. Like people start to get upset about taking what, even GP partnerships, I've seen much smaller ones. I've got to tell you, man, right up until, you know, we merged, we had one signatory on the account. Like our bank used to like tear the hair out. Like they say, you've got to have two signatories. And we had unlimited, like we had no issue with someone might take one P more than the other. You know, we never had an issue. So mm. one was unbelievable trust. I do think faith plays an important part of that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, you know, as Muslims, we have a very strong belief in honesty and fairness um, and being fair to other people. Whether they're Muslim Amazing. or not is irrelevant, but just that sense of fairness. So that made a big difference that, you know, we had, we were, you know, we had a common faith and the level of trust was very high. Your question about dynamics is an interesting one. So we had very different personalities. So one of my partners, Imran, for example, amazing visionary you know, mm. even now I would say, you know, if someone will sit down and talk to him about what's going to happen in five years, it's like the guy's got crystal ball, amazing visionary. We amazing. had, uh, you know, one of our partners, Tariq, who very strong in data analytics and you know he actually amongst us was a prize winner so he won university of london honors he won all the prizes so very very smart we had um you know all the individual i won't name each of them but um yeah. you know ozzy i'll name one more fias you know every money everyone had some individual skills just mm. by luck man that you know fitted together um like a jigsaw but I would still say, man, ultimately, ultimately, you have to trust each other because you have mm. to trust that the other person is working hard. Mm. You know, what do people break up yeah. over? They work because they think they're working harder than someone else. They think they're not earning enough. They yeah. don't think the person's putting the effort. They're the other thing that make co-founders. I do think six is a big size, though. 
It is mm. a big size. Yeah. And, you know, we used to have massive, massive rows, like crazy, <laughs> like arguments and fights. And we'd often say like, you know, this can't be the way. But then I realized later, man, that that shows passion, shows you yes. care. I'll contrast that with one other thing. So many years later, I was on a governing body for a particular CCG. There were never any arguments. Like no one ever argued. And I, I found it so strange because I'd go back to ours and we'd be <laughs> like, to fight each other, yeah, over what, what we should do. But but I learned that actually when it's your own money, it's your own business, the passion, that's what makes you want to like make it yes, right. Absolutely. When you get people that are, you know, it's their job. This was more than a job. This was like our life of work. Yeah. We did every single day. But six is big. So mm. Asna, if you can give us an example of, say, where you've had a bit of a discrepancy, those rows you've explained, how do you guys make, how did you guys go about making a decision then? Six of you guys, let's say three and three, how did you guys make that big decision? <laughs> What's the framework you applied? Yeah, listen, man, there was no academic theory to this. What we did is we were all, so the way it grew, the way the business grew is that we were in geographic areas. So we were like, look, we need to take over certain areas into regions. And so if we had a disagreement, we would say, okay, look, let's test it out. You test your model over here. We're going to test our model over here, real life mm. test. And let's evaluate and let's see where we end up with what's right. And that ended up being a really powerful thing for us to learn. Um, even recently, you know, in the last few years, when we launched our online consultation platform, DocRiQ, we don't do it the same across the business. Mm. We couldn't agree. So we had a long argument about how we should run it. Should it be GP-led? Should it be AHP? Should it be a hub or not? Whatever. And so we're currently just evaluating which, which model we're going to go with company-wide. Mm. Because sometimes you don't know. You want to try it. Yeah. So we always had, one of the things that we always had in our business was, don't be scared to try stuff. Try it. Even if you screw it up, doesn't matter. You know, at least you tried it and you learned. So oh. we had this kind of spirit of, let's try it in real life. So we're big on practical. How can we yeah. run it? How can we do it? Uh, and that worked really well for us, man. Really, really well. No, I feel like Amazing. there's a sense of kind of brotherhood, trust amongst your co-founders, the willing to experiment and that passion, that grit, you know, to make it work. The question is, you're kind of at this stage now, you're, you're, you're running five or six practices. At this point, did you have like a, a, a playbook? You put in a bid, you go in, what are the first few things you do to a practice? Do you kind of get rid of everyone? Do you bring some talent in? What was the playbook or did you not have a playbook at this point? No, I mean, the practice that we were taking over were absolutely mashed. That's the first thing to say. These mm. weren't like high performing. That's why they were, they were all inner city areas. I so see. we're talking about, you know, even if you look at where our practices are now, they're in like Tower Hamlets, yeah, East London, yeah. massive Bengali population, um, quite deprived. Uh, we've got another one down in Croydon, but I'm talking about, you know, the really deprived outer areas. Yeah. So all of our practices were like that. So we kind of understood that, I mean, look, I, I, it sounds a bit, um, holier than thou, but because all of us were from very, very humble backgrounds, we had a very strong passion, uh, mm. making sure we give good quality care. That was like mm -hmm. unbelievable. It was like, we have to make sure we never compromise on it. And that's got to be our USP over everybody else that the, no one should be able to touch the quality of the care that we provide. So we learned quickly when you go into a practice, what are the key things you need to do? So, you know, all the high risk safety stuff, who are the high risk patients, child safeguarding, what are the big governance issues? Are there any issues around like data, data security, data protection. You're absolutely right, man. In the end, when you get bigger, you rely on other people to deliver whatever yeah. you're doing. Particularly, you know, health is a service-based industry, right? So getting good doctors in. Um, in the beginning, it was less of an issue because we were consulting like mad. Like we used to consult crazy sessions all the time, yeah? 
But then as we got bigger, obviously you can't do that. You get, you know, yeah. diminishing law diminishing returns, right? Um, we found some really good gems. One of the things we, we learned, man, you can't go into a practice and get rid of people. It doesn't yeah. work like that. Yeah. Employment law. And we learned that over time. We learned how do you manage people? You know, how do you manage people in? How do you manage people out? How mm. do you make sure you've got the right staff doing the right things? Um, it's actually as you scale up, it becomes more challenging. Yeah. Mm. Um, what we did do though, man, is very careful not to expand too quickly. So okay. we expanded to about six practices and we learned how to manage six. Then we were like, okay, then we expanded probably up to about nine or 10. And then I think when we got to about 12, we stopped for a long time. We stopped. We said, look, we don't want to bid for any more until we're sure we can deliver very, very good care to our, our practices. There were other GP groups yeah, mm. that came after us and overtook us. Yeah. So our trajectory was much slower. They came, they bid. When we had 10, they probably had like 15. Yeah. Mm. And they kept bidding, bidding, bidding. And we were like, no, we're going to only grow in a managed way because healthcare is not like we're not, you know, mm. we're not selling chips, fish and chips. We've got to make sure. If you look at it ultimately over time, man, we then ended up taking over those providers' practices because they just couldn't do a good job. They just yeah. couldn't run those practices. They just weren't set up because you're not running, you know, it's not favorite fried chicken. You've got to have understanding of nuance of culture you can't run the practice in tower hamlets where we had 85 percent bengali patients yeah. with the way you run the practice in new addington yeah? where you got 85 yeah. percent white patients who are from a lower social working class you have to understand that right um and so we were lucky that we kind of understood that those differences um and so ultimately man we we you know if you want to take it like that but you know we grew much larger than all our competitors because it was much more managed much more careful um, much more detailed, really understanding the detail. And, and that's what I'd say to people. You really need to understand your area, your subject matter. So when you're in your room, in a room with people, and it's your area, you should be the smartest person in that. Area. You've really got to know it inside. Mm, absolutely. Tell us a bit more about the tipping point where you know you're onto something, where it's like, all right, like we've doubled down, you're not doing any more clinical work, you're just kind of managing executive. What, what, what number of gp practices was that point where you just kind of you know it just shot up yeah so i think once we got beyond sort of 10 then yeah. we were like okay this is a size where we think we can just replicate what we do now there's a critical mass we've got once you get to 50 to 60 000 patients you have enough critical mass where you know you're going to need some corporate support mm. you then start to centralize so we centralize all our back office functions we had an hr department a finance okay. department all of that kind of stuff. I think at that time, man, we probably had 80 to 100,000, but 50 is probably the point. If, if you ask me a number, yeah. um, 80, 100. After that, we were like, okay, we kind of know how this works now. We've got a model, mm. a really set model of how it yeah. works. Um, and then the other thing that probably, there are some other things along the way that may, maybe I'll touch on now. So one of the big problems in primary care, I'd even say in secondary care, is understanding of data and mm -hmm. everyone agreeing one version of the truth what is the current data? What does it mean? And so when we had probably about six practices, we'd have one person literally making Excel spreadsheets that we'd look at and say, okay, your blood pressure control is poor. Your, this is not very good. So we did a project with the data. We, we, we did it's something called the knowledge transfer program. It's like a research program with university of Surrey to develop our own analytics tool. We said, can we develop our own analytics tool that sucks up data from our practices and presents it to us? So we could just look at it and say, okay, this is what's like, like a dashboard. And so really, man, that was a really big turning point for us to understand really what is happening in the practices. 
understanding what the data says. Yeah. I know now it's more commonplace, but you know, at the time, this was really way, way advanced and no one yeah. was really doing this in primary care to have one set of data, which is so rich and deep. That eventually became a product called Easy Analytics, um, which, which now is, you know, a core part of our offering. We use it in our business. It's also been sold externally to CCGs, to PCNs, to other GP practices who are able to look at the data and interpret it, interpret what's kind of going on. So, so that was an important milestone. I'll, I'll say one other thing and, I, and I'll be quiet after that. I suppose the other bit that we realized, man, probably in about 2017, 18, we kind of realized that if we don't have a tech offering ourselves, then we'll be dead in the water. Hmm. And so 2018, we created a new company called AT Tech. Okay. We partnered with one of our friends called Hasib, who had worked in the CCG, had a lot of knowledge of NHS IT. So we set up our own technology company with our own developers, yeah, offshore and onshore. So offshore, we set up a whole organization in Pakistan. Hmm. Uh, we had about 70 developers working. Uh, we had a whole team there. We had a team here as well. And that really developed the analytics tool. And it also, we developed our own online consultation platform called Dr. IQ. Um, that was a really important part for us. And then with Omar, who ultimately is now our MD and became our CEO, Omar, uh, we developed a learning platform, which was teaching allied health professionals, nurses, uh, GP registrars, physicians associates, clinical pharmacists. We developed our own learning management system for them. Because mm. that's what you need ultimately. You need good quality training. You need technology and then you need the primary care. And those three together made us a really unique proposition because we controlled all those bits of it. That's very interesting. And I think it shows that even from an entrepreneurial point of view, opportunities, problems, solving it, you just stick to kind of the AT medics and kind of building that out. We tell us a bit more. So you're on this trajectory, you're just accumulating you know, taking ownership of more and more practices, building it up, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients, looking after them, you're definitely doing a, a, a good job. Tell us towards the end phase of that journey when it's coming to acquisition, was that on the map? Did you think about it? How did that offer come about? What was the process? Um, tell us about that half of the story. Yeah, so so look, what I think the first thing to say is that we were much, we were getting to a good state of maturity from a tech mm. perspective and the learning. So we had a good methodology because just take a step back for answer that question. If you look at what are the big problems, any, any founder needs to solve a problem that people really have. Mm. So the problem in primary care right now is workforce crisis. It's been yeah. around forever. Yeah. Everyone, even since when I was GP, there was like never anyone around. So workforce crisis was a big problem. Tech in the NHS, as you guys will know, is very poor in general. It's very hard to penetrate. It's very hard to actually make it work and for people to adopt it. Being just in primary care helped us. So one of the things we did, we only focused on primary care. We never went away from our mission. So we never mm. went into secondary care. We never went into community care. It was okay. just one track. So we really mm. focused on one area and everything then. So all the learning, the teaching, the education, the technology was all focused into becoming that one area. The other thing we did really out of laziness, we've never been outside London. So we're all from London. Yeah. We never, <laughs> ever, we never went to Birmingham never went anywhere else. And if you look at other providers, they were dotted all around. And we used to always think, God, like, how do you manage a small practice out here and one out here? We were all in London. Yeah. So I could get to any of our practices within an hour if I had to I see yeah? mm. all of us could. So we were nice and neat. So at this point, man, we probably had 370,000 patients. Um, so that, that whole group, so we had, we call it 80 group, but that group of three organizations was quite powerful. 
I mean, look, it, it wasn't on our roadmap is the first thing. So our plan was just to just to keep running it. There's no reason to not do anything. Mm -hmm. We never suggested it. We didn't approach. From time to time, we'd get like spam emails saying, are you interested? We've got like, you know, people want to, you know, are you interested in having a discussion? We weren't really particularly interested at that point. We had a chance meeting, actually. Our CEO at the time had a chance meeting with the the CEO of Opera's Health. It was um it was a group of I think it was it was for female CEOs in healthcare. There was a meeting where they met, and there was a discussion about coming to, down to meet us. And for one reason or another, man, we didn't meet them probably for about nine months because we went into a tender process because mm. they were our competitors. We uh -huh. didn't want to get done with collusions. We said, look, we can't meet you right now. We can't talk to you right now. And then interviews and so on. I think it probably took about nine months. They they kind of just said, look, we're we're just want to come down and see what you guys are doing. We were like, yeah, no problem. We often had people come to visit us to understand what we're doing with tech. So we said, yeah, no problem. And then they kind of met us and then nothing really happened for a little while. We just kind of carried on. It was not an issue. And then there was a discussion around, look, you know, how would it look if there was, you know, would you be interested in looking at a merger? Now, you know, what I'd say diplomatically on this podcast is we were six guys in London. We, when you get bigger, you get yeah. noticed. Yeah. So when you have one practice, nobody cares. But if you've got like, I don't know, man, I think at the point of takeoff, we had like maybe say 35 practices. I can't remember what the number was. Yeah. You're not always flavor of the month and, and you need a bit of political cover. You need a bit of cover from someone to make it, make it, you know, at a high level. We were always a bit disappointed, man, that, um, I've never really said this before, but we were always a bit disappointed about how the hierarchy in the NHS engage with us at the mm. point of sale man one in every 18 Londoner was registered with our one of our practices you know that's a big number for a big city yeah. and we, we used to often joke that you know we should be like Harry and William we should never travel in the same car because you know if we had a car crash you'd wipe out primary yeah. care in London for, for a huge number of patients <laughs> so we were quite big at that point and we wanted to do lots of stuff so for example we talked about taking 24-hour care for our patients we said why don't we just give us the budget we'll take over 24-7 care for our patients we said, give us our budget for IT because they wouldn't give us the IT budget. So now we're spending like 100K a year from our own money buying people laptops because we wanted mm -hmm. to go remote. This is even pre-COVID, yeah? We had kind of already mm -hmm. adopted that model. And so there were a lot of restrictions in what we could and couldn't do. Why? I'll let people think about why that might have transpired like that. But we certainly don't feel we got the engagement. Um, some people did. And I'll say, you know, Andrew Bland, who is now a very senior, amazing guy, really supported was always happy to have a conversation in the chat, but very high up, man. We never really had, and, and I wonder whether that would have been different, maybe if the organization had been a bit different or had a different footprint. Um, but certainly we didn't have the political connections, man. We kind of were just focused on doing what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so what you realize is that when you get higher up, man, you definitely need, you need that too. And maybe that was a weakness in us. Maybe our weakness was going out and really, you know, pressing the flesh at high levels. You answered the question I was going to ask. It was despite the progress, despite the number of practices and the patient populations you were you were looking after, the press coverage, the online footprint, the exposure didn't seem as much as it is where there are people with like three or four practices and they're out there kind of shouting. Yeah. And I want to ask why did you think that is? And I'm sure there's a multi reason. It might be, you know, the co-founding team, you know, your access to distribution, so on and so forth. And it's very interesting. And my thought was, could you have taken this to the next level if you had those connections, if you had that buy-in and engagement by those hierarchy uh, and really give it a good go? Because I thought you guys were the right people to do it, but it felt like there was this glass ceiling. I mean, look, yeah, that, that's the right word, basically. So 
there is a glass ceiling. Let me just tell that to anyone out there. There is a glass ceiling. Uh, we definitely felt like we hit that glass ceiling. Could we have taken it to the next level? 100% yes. We still, because, you know, it's it's easy from where we got to, to go the next stage up is easy because you have resources, you have a yeah. team, you have you have knowledge, know-how. You know, we were all into our 40s by this stage. Like, I'm 47 now, but we were like, you know, 42, 43. Mm. You're still healthy, you still have the energy. You're very constrained in the NHS. You have to understand that it's not like, you know, starting your, like you guys have got an independent business. You can kind of take it where you want. Yeah. Highly regulated, highly, highly regulated. Um, the funding is very, very controlled. Um, it's very fragmented. Yeah. It's extremely fragmented across London. Even now you've got ICBs. They all work in a slightly different way. They have their own agendas, their own ideas. And so look, man, you know, you recognize uh, 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 where you hit your glass ceiling. And, you know, there's been a lot more recently come out about NHS and how, you know, there's a discrepancy between the number of people from BAME backgrounds that get to consult yeah. jobs or not. We didn't feel that because obviously we owned our own business, right? We were, the, you know, we could reasonably do what we wanted to do. It wasn't a problem. But for sure, man, when you deal with external influences, you never know. And, you know, mm. you don't want to say this has happened because of this reason. You don't really want to say that. But now when I think back, I've had a period of time to reflect. I definitely feel like, you know, that that was an issue for sure for us. Mm. Um, and I wonder how another organization that might have looked a bit different, how they might have been treated if they were the biggest provider in the country. I mean, isn't it amazing that we're the biggest provider in the country now? Yeah. So imagine in 2021, we are the largest primary care provider in the country. And no one from central NHS, central government ever really reached out to us, came and talked to us and said, you know, what are you guys doing? Can we replicate it? Can we give you some funding? Try something more innovative. Yeah. All of the money that we put in for tech and learning was our own money. Yeah. Every mm. penny we put in, we never took, you know, because of our faith, we didn't want to take any interest from a bank or a loan. We only put our own money back into it, which was good in the end, but mm. it was all our own money. We didn't get any extra funding from anyone or anything. Um, but you wonder if that had been different. Yeah. That's all. Who, who no, knows? De definitely. Um, do you think it'd be different now in the current climate in the terms in terms of we've got all the media outlets right now, we've got social media and all of that jazz. Would would it have been different if you could shout from the mountaintops yourself? What do you think about that? I mean, look, man, who knows? Who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, at, at the time, look, we we kept winning bids. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we became very good at winning bids. Yeah. The process at that time was pretty slick and you know we basically won i think we bid for like 10 or 15 practices and won every single one in a row so we became very good at <laughs> Amazing. that you know we get to like 2020 hmm. we're thinking what can we do with the business what can we do with the organization have we taken it as far as we can take it are we enjoying all of the business bits do we want to concentrate more clinically do we want what do we want to do basically going forward mm -hmm. we met sam sam jones was ceo of uh, opera's health yeah and very credible she'd been a director within the nhs very senior level um she'd been the ceo of a, of a hospital of a big trust she ultimately went on to become boris johnson you know the first chief operating officer in number 10 downing street so you know very high caliber yeah. uh, person herself um nick professor nick harding he was a cmo they kind of came down to talk to us it was a very slow process man it was like you know what are you guys doing same sort of stuff you know what do you want to ultimately get to Mm. Um, we felt they were quite connected because they were, you know, they were both done very senior jobs centrally in the NHS. They kind of knew. And so really at that time, man, our brain was like, actually, this is a, this protects us, protects yeah. our legacy organization. If we can get some cover, the organization becomes much larger. And really, man, that process, 
started to probably, I'd say around 20, you know, I think 2021 is when we finally did the merger, but probably, you know, the six months before that, the discussions ongoing, how might it look, what would our role look like? Cause you know, we yeah. didn't use it like, you know, no one ever asked us where, you know, where am I on a Monday at three o'clock, yeah. you know, you, you do what you want. <laughs> so for us, it was like discussion with family, discussions like that. But I think ultimately their vision aligned with our vision, which mm. is primary care, technology, central spine. If you look at what's happening and I don't know both of your backgrounds, but you know, primary care is in a, is, is in a desperate situation across the country. Yeah. Um, and really it's what does a future model of care look like for primary care? And so really we became more and more aligned as we started to discuss, they started to understand really where we were trying to get to. We kind of understood where they were trying to get to. And it just made sense for us, man. Just made sense for us to have that level of um, almost like a protection blanket around, around the organization. Uh, my next question, right? The, yeah. <laughs> tell us about the, that's when I discovered AT Medics, hmm. the, the flack, the, the public uproar in terms of kind of selling, it was described as selling patients yeah. to, to the American system type thing. How did you deal with it? How did you feel after kind of years of hard work? And yeah. I'm sure you had issues you know, in between all of that. I mean, look, what happened at the time, man, was the first thing to understand is that Opera's Health have been in the UK market for a long, long, long time. Almost as long as AT Medics, not quite as long, but for a long time. Mm. They were called something else. So the people that we dealt with throughout the whole period were all people like us, man. They were all like from the UK, born and brought up in England. There were no Americans. It was like all normalized in the UK. We very much saw it as a merger of two English, British companies. I do understand the narrative. I'm not naive. I get patients saying, oh, but this, the ultimate parent owner of yeah. uh, Opera's Health is this huge corporation in America. Uh, called Centene. So I do get that narrative. We didn't really look at it like that, man, because, you know, I've never been to the States. Like, I never met those guys coming over. Our, our, our contact, even now, on a day-to-day -day basis with the people in this country. Um, mm. But I do get the narrative. People are worried about privatization. Yeah. Um, I think the narrative is wrong, though. I don't think the NHS will ever be privatized, in my opinion. I think politically, it, it could never happen. If it happened, it would be a bad thing. So I'm not a, a proponent of that. I think if you look at privatized systems in the world, generally increases health inequalities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the UK system does need reform. It can't stay as it is. And it has to be changed. Um, but I don't think privatization is the way. And we, if I had thought that what I was doing was a was a road to that, we never would have proceeded with it because we, you know, fundamentally don't believe in that model. Tell us a bit more how life changed post-merger, what the day-to-day -day was, you know, what happened to that Monday 3 p.m.? <laughs> Where are you now on the Monday 3 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I have to say that the, the, well, what happened, it's an interesting one because obviously we had two HR departments now. We've got yeah. two finance departments. They had their own executive team. I've got to say, you know, oh, someone, if they did a study, they wouldn't be able to pigeon, you know, we were like six of us and then people would like our CEO and that was kind of our exec team, yeah? Um, we had meetings, obviously had HR and finance because, you know, at the point of merger, man, we were, we employed like 800 people. So it was quite a oh, big, wow. Wow. Yeah, big. And, and so when we then came together with them, we formed a new executive team. Okay. So the exec team meant that from the six of us, three of us joined the exec team. They obviously, a few people left from their side. So now there's a combined exec team that is at the top of the organization, um, that kind of runs the business. Um, my role is primary care director. I mean, look, fair use to the guys, you know, I have a very free hand. So 
I've always, for example, led on the online consultation platform that we developed. I continue to kind of work lead on that. Um, people, uh, when we got bigger, we were really running regions in the end. So like my region was Southwark and Tower Hamlets. Mm. That's like about, it's about 100,000 patients, a bit more than that. So I've continued to run that region almost like a medical director role. But I kind cool. of get involved in ops. I still get involved in clinical work. And all the directors have their own kind of areas in London. And and so it, I mean, look, it is different. There's no doubt, you know, for, for any founder that is ultimately uh, undergoes an M&A, you have to understand it's not the same. Um, it is different, um, good and bad. So definitely less pressure, for sure. If you ask my friends and family, they'll say you're definitely more chilled than you were mm-hmm. towards the end, where it's more difficult because obviously you're living it every single day. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, you lose your autonomy. You know, there is a degree of auto, you know, before I could go in and say, hire this person or let's sort out a pay rise for this person or whatever it is you want to do. Now it's much more, you know, I guess more normalized, I would say. Our system was abnormal. Now it's more like, let's bring a paper to the board. Let's have a discussion, pros and Mm -hmm. cons. In the old days, you know, someone would say, guys, I'm going to try this. And we were like, all right. Go for it. I can imagine. So (laughs) it was like, no, that's how it became. And, you know, our board meetings were Friday, you know, after Juma, we'd get yeah. like fried chicken in from the local chicken shop. And that was our board meeting. You know, that is what we would do. We would just <laughs> eat fried chicken there or grilled chicken. And we'd discuss what we, you know, what had happened that week or what we wanted to do. So, you know, I, we recognized that that wasn't normal. Uh, and so, but, you know, then you move to a much more corporate structure, which is probably more normalized. Mm. It's a big organization now, man. You know, it's 650,000 plus patients. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a big operation. Definitely. Amazing. The question I had was, was the M&A, the, the merger with AT Medics plus the tech and learning or was it just AT Medics? No. So what we did, man, is um, when we formed, uh, this might be, but, but when we formed the other two organizations, they were two standalone companies. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Under an umbrella called AT Group. So AT okay. Group was the ultimate owner of all three. And so the merger was at the group level. Oh, because, so the holding. Yeah, the holding because, you know, they were so intertwined as, as, as three businesses, um, for the tech, obviously we had two products in there, but they were so intertwined that really they, they, the, the holding is where, where it made sense really. No, definitely. Tell us what the co-founders who didn't stick around, what they do or what happened to them? Oh no. So, so, so all, all of us have stayed, I see. all of us okay. have stayed on, yeah. All of us have stayed. So we're now like, you know, two and a, a half years, maybe two and a quarter years into into it we're all kind of working pretty much as we were other than the constraints that i mentioned are are normalized but we're still kind of doing our roles as we were which is managing our regions day-to-day getting involved in the side and all the rest of it um but it's also true that of course you know with one eye on the future like you know what what will happen ongoing Mm. um what we want to do you know obviously we get offers from people um saying can you do you want to get involved in this or do a bit of consultancy um, we've had some offers from people overseas that are setting up health systems that, are, yeah. that mm-hmm. are interested in various countries that, you know, are looking at setting up their own primary care. You know, one of the things you realize when you go around the world, I mean, you guys obviously must have family. Where are you guys from originally? Where are your parents from? Bangladesh. So, you know, so, you know, yeah, you know, you realize that there is no primary care system. You yeah. know, if you're, if you've got heart, you go to a cardiologist or if there is, you know, the, the local primary care system is a guy who just did his MBBS and next day he's working as a GP. Yeah. That's what all GPs, yeah? There's like no, no respect. And the day after he becomes an associate <laughs> professor, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
You're exactly right, man. So, so, but, but I think governments are realizing, particularly in the Middle East, that mm. you know, to have a good, strong healthcare, you have to have, um, and and you know, the problems. One of the things I've learned actually is that the problems in healthcare are the same in every country. One is bringing down the unit cost of healthcare. Yeah. You know, how do you make it affordable? How do you improve the quality of care? And really, the big time bomb is long-term conditions, man. You know, if you look at the prevalence yeah. of things like diabetes and stuff, more people will die of diabetic complications than infectious diseases in Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, because that's that, that's the issue. So those problems are, and no one solved those problems yet worldwide. There is no solution, no single solution. There's no magic bullet. Um, mm-hmm. So really, the question is, what happens in the future, man? Yeah, Asnan, are you allowed to Sorry, share your vision? for the future of what general practice will look like it's a good question i i i don't know what it looked like man but but mm. you know um i'll give you a great answer so someone asked jeff bezos they said you know tell us you're so like you know richest man in the world whatever you know what will amazon look like and he said something which is true for any walk of life he said look i don't know what it's going to look like but i can tell you the things that are true so mm. people will always want choice yeah, in 10 years time, no one's going to say, no, nah, no, nah, I want one product. They're going to want to choose out of 10. Mm-hmm. They want quick delivery and they want cheap price. So he says in Amazon, we spend all our time working on these three things. How do we offer better choice at the lowest price, faster delivery? And that's true. So you can read across the healthcare. What will people want? People want high quality care. They want access to care. So one of the big problems worldwide in the UK is access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a reduced cost. How do we reduce the unit cost of healthcare? The cost of healthcare in this country is, even though it socializes, is still high. It costs a lot of money, yeah. particularly towards the end of life. Our big problems are layer onto that. Workforce is a big problem in this country. It's mm-hmm. a disaster that is going to evolve in front of our eyes going forward. Not enough doctors staying after their foundation. Yeah. Year. Not enough. My brother was telling me yesterday that, you know, two of his colleagues that are finishing their radiology training, both moving to the States. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got four GPs in our organization that, you know, have worked with us for a very long time. One's going to Australia. One is going with his wife, Sierra Leone for relief work. One is going, uh, two are going to Qatar. Oh, wow. These are big issues. You can, you know, if you look at recruitment, you can keep filling in the top, but if you're losing from the bottom, you know, you're never going to win. So workforce will remain a huge issue in the in primary care, particularly. So access to healthcare, I think people will want. Um, then the question is, how do you then use digital tools to enable that access? Um, how do you make it safe for allied healthcare professionals like pharmacists, like PAs, like physios? How does that, how do they work with a consultant GP model? I mean, we're kind mm. of already doing that. Yeah. So in our organization, we've been doing it now. So I run a hub in Southwark, for example, where all of our digital transactions, every yeah. single online consult for the whole region, which is 60,000 patients come into a single hub. We've got a centralized admin team that deal with all of that. We've mm-hmm. taken it away from the practice level. And Amazing. we've got a centralized team of clinicians that deal with all of that. They can then book into the practice if they need a face-to-face. Um, that is the way it's got to go because they just aren't enough doctors. I say to my wife, who's going to take care of us when we're old? Like, yeah. just aren't it's, it's a worrying thought. Off the back of that, a quick question <laughs> is, what are your thoughts on kind of the Babylon situation and what, was it like when they were first introduced, right? They're now, that's how much their share price was less than a pound, right? Yeah. Where do you think they went wrong? What was it like when they first came onto the scene? Yeah, it's a good question, man. So look, you know, when Babylon came along the scene, they, look, the first thing to say is that, you know, Babylon had a lot of money behind them. Yeah. And so 
a bit like Uber, you know, Uber still doesn't make any profit. You know, the, these companies don't need to make a profit. They have to show growth. Yeah. And they have to show a concept of a model. So they were throwing lots of money at showing growth. So they did grow very quickly. They weren't really offering primary care as I would class primary care. I would say primary care is any patient. Yeah. You yeah. come in and say, you know what? We can't take you. We're not taking you. Everyone. And, you know, if you look at us, man, we took everyone. In fact, we took the patients that were the hardest patients, you know, with all due respect, you know, Asian patients are the most difficult patients to take on. Yeah. You know what our Bengali uncles are like? Yeah. It's like, you know, Lambert, we got the, the Pakistani aunties, you know, these are tough patients. We take, t- take them all of them. Okay. The second thing with them is that primary care man is a very difficult place to actually turn a profit from. And most mm. big organizations have not been able to do that because it's a detailed business. It's a detailed business. You've got to really understand it. The other issue they had, man, was that their model of access is not affordable with the way the NHS is funded. Mm. And the reason we know that to be true is because now that they're funded, you know, their share price obviously, unfortunately, has gone down massively. They're not, you know, their list size is going down now, yeah? So yeah. they look at their list size has gone down. They've given up their Birmingham. And this is what happens because it's not a sustainable model. You can't, you can run it for a year or two, but it doesn't run. The third thing, man, is that the technology that they developed fundamentally was flawed. Um, I, I was never a fan of it. I tried it, you know, when it first came out, like everybody else, it didn't really work. You had to answer 45 questions to arrive at the fact that you had a runny nose from yeah. the patient, right? All of those models, none of them are very effective at the moment. They will be. I'm sure they will be. When, you know, with ChatGPT, we can see the power of AI, and I'm sure in future there'll be models, but that just was too early. You know, people talk about vaporware, and some of the demos weren't really true. Yeah. The GP fraternity didn't like them at all, um, which probably didn't help. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But but I think that the point is, man, funding in the NHS is very, very tight. To then run a service and to make it successful um, and to run it at a sustainable profit. Let's talk about the word profit because, you know, one of the big flaps was a private organization makes profit. It's important to understand, man, no GP will run a GP surgery if he's not making any money because how's he going to pay his mortgage at the end of the month? You know, mm. a partner is profit. They have to make some money. No one runs it at a loss. So you have to make some profit. So this was the issue with Babylon, man. One was flawed technology, for sure, in my opinion. Clinic, uh, clinically, you know, there were lots of criticism. I don't know if you're aware, but huge criticism of the technology. It didn't really reduce demand, which is what it was supposed to do. Um, and the model of care where you're slicing and dicing a small segment of population, it doesn't answer the problem. So I, I would come back and say, you know, obviously your, your, your podcast goes out to founders. If you're working on a problem, make sure you're working on a problem that actually is a real life problem. Fix mm-hmm. a problem that exists because there are lots of hard problems in the world that exist. And, you know, without sounding holy than that, we were always trying to do that. We were always trying to fix real problems. You know, people talk about yeah. product market fit. You can call it that if you like. What real problems you're trying to solve? I'll tell you what they are. Is access to healthcare, is unit cost of healthcare. They are still, and workforce, they are still the three biggest, biggest problems that nobody has solved. Absolutely. Hasn't even got near solved. No, thank you for sharing that. And I think it is important. And I think that's a nice way to kind of tie the conversation, solve a genuine problem. And there are lots of it in the NHS, in the current system, let alone the healthcare as, as a wider thing across the world. Any advice? to founders, to people that maybe wanted to bring innovative solutions, the health tech app platform into the system, 
because in a way you would be the buyer right when people are approaching it i'm sure you had it yeah i think it would be interesting to see what you want to see before you go ahead and roll out cross practices man a little bit is a repetition of what i said you know the problem we saw is that and one of the reasons why we set up our own technology company is because yeah. no one had solved the two problems we wanted to solve properly so we had to then solve it ourselves yeah the other issue is that there's a lot of people that develop tech and then they try to retrofit it. They try to retrofit it into a problem rather than working organically upwards. And sometimes you get lucky, but mostly you don't. Yeah. The third thing I'd also say, man, is, you know, NHS penetration with technology is a nightmare. Is a nightmare. Yeah. The market is extremely difficult to penetrate because it's fragmented. So let's say you've got a great product. You take it to one ICB. The ICB now says, oh, I'm not sure. Take it to the PCN. Now, you know, there are like PCNs for, you know, how many, you have to like micro sell to PCNs. Each PCN has a board. That board has to meet. You're now trying to convince seven people who have got another day job that they should buy your technology. So it becomes very, very difficult for to develop a solution for the NHS, which the NHS will then take on en masse or that you can sell en masse because it's become so fragmented. And that's mm. a big problem with the current reforms. Where, where they fit um, is very hard to get, get a product in. You know, even for us, so we, for example, have a product called Easy Analytics, yeah, which mm. I mentioned earlier kind of really helps us in our business. We've sold that to like a large CCG, if you like. So that's like 400,000 patient size. Great. That's good. Easy to do. Now imagine you have to sell that to a population of 30 to 50,000 times. Imagine the effort required to sell yeah. it to one mm. of those. As a founder, how much money you're going to spend on marketing and the return on that everybody wants a deal the funding isn't quite clear it yeah. becomes difficult so i would say be very very careful about developing something i mean i mean your product is completely different yours is a, is an is incredible thing but um specifically nhs related stuff man I, I would be wary like if i was developing something new i'd be wary about developing it for the nhs <laughs> yeah definitely i mean like a lot of these groups with like prominent health tech founders in the uk and a lot of the discussion from the VCs and the, the, the people that are backing them is very quickly find a way to enter the US market or other healthcare systems. Do not rely on the single payer being the NHS because they can pull the plug overnight, even if you did get a nationwide contract. Um, so no, definitely, it's, it's, it's a very interesting space. At the same time, the way I like to see is that it means there's a lot of opportunity, right? Um, no, it's been a jam-packed episode, Asmain. Thank you for sharing the story. I was trying to look, there isn't much information about your journey, the stuff you guys have did, which is incredible. I do agree with some of the things we did discuss, um, but it's an absolute pleasure and I hope to kind of see you continue smashing it. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Appreciate your, your, your kind words. And also you guys, you know, I, you know, I've looked into what you guys have done. I think it's, it's amazing. Um, and, and, you know, keep working hard, keep going, you know, you, you, you'll get there in the end. You, yeah. It's about the right mindset. Um, and, you know, well done on the podcast as well. No, thank, thank you so, so much. much.